0: James chapter 4. I'm not responsible for anything to say today. I uh, got overheated yesterday. I'm not mad. My face is still red. Got a little bit of sunburn and stuff, so... Anyway, I'm good. James chapter 4, verse 11 to 17. Practical atheism. Let me give you a definition. Practical atheism is when someone who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't exist... That's practical atheism. We believe in God, but many times we live as if he doesn't exist. An illustration of that was that Abraham, he was called by God in Genesis chapter 12. He obeyed God and went to a land that he had never seen before. And while he was in that land, a, fa- a famine struck. Well, his immediate and first reaction was not to pray to God to provide the means that they had to do to continue living there. His first reaction to that was to go down into Egypt. The point is this. Abraham was willing to trust God for eternity, these incredible promises that he was given in Genesis chapter 12, but he wasn't willing to trust God for today. See, that's practical atheism. We believe that God exists, believe that he is, but we live our lives as if he doesn't exist. It's easy for believers to make plans, set goals, expect God to fall into line behind him. After all, that's his place. It's easy for believers to plan our lives as if we control the future and have unlimited authority over factors that will affect those plans. It's easy for believers to judge others while ignoring the judge of the universe. That's practical atheism. Those are the things that we're looking at in these verses here that they warn, as, as James again is warning these fellow believers against self-centered living as we look at these verses. So practical atheism. First of all, look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But, But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Just a couple of things I want to point out to you. It's going to take me a little bit to develop this. This is a command. Do not. It's a, it's, a, it's a, you know, we have positive cans. You need to do this. Well, he's saying to you, you need to stop this. You need to stop doing this. Do not. Uh, and interesting is, it's in the present tense. and I, As I've told you before, this is, this is an uh, ongoing action. This, is, this has become a habit. In other words, he's not, he's not saying there's an isolated sin that we need to deal with here. We need to deal with this sin that is not isolated, but it's broad, broad and it's widespread and has become a habit in your life. Started in the past, it continues even now to this day. Do not stop it. Years ago when the western, in the western U.S. was being settled, roads were often just wagon tracks before my time. These rough trails posed serious problems for those who journeyed on them. Uh, On one of these winding paths was posted a sign which read, Avoid this rut or you'll be in it for the next 25 miles. See, a habit is something you can do without thinking. That's why we have so many of them. This evil speaking that was going on had become a habit. They had gotten in a rut and they couldn't get out. James had to come along and say, listen, stop it. Get out of the rut. Speak evil. It's criticism. It's been interpreted, translated two different ways because it's not necessarily an easy word to understand or translate itself. To speak evil, it's been translated slander. These are false statements about someone with the intent to damage their reputation. Diminish their value to the one spoken about. Uh, My father put it this way. Listen, blowing out somebody else's candle will not make your candle shine brighter. What it will do will expose you. Slander is the aspect of trying to blow somebody else's candle out to make them look poorly or look them bad, especially to the person we're speaking to. If I can blow their candle out, mine will look better. So slander. Backbiting. I couldn't help but think of the the World Cup just passed. I think the fellow was a soccer player from Uruguay. He actually bit another player in the back or on the shoulder. You know, and and you you shake your head and you go like, what was he thinking? And when they played it over and over and over again, you kept saying, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? What was he thinking? Uh, Evander Holyfield was bitten by Mike Tyson. I didn't see that fight, but I saw the replay of it. And you're going, what in the world is wrong with these people? Backbiting. That's what it's described as. Malicious, harmful statements about someone who is not present. None of us would bite someone in the back, literally, would we? Yet we do it with words all the time. Slander. Backbiting. Romans chapter 1 verse 30, it's listed among the, the sins of the unsaved backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 20, Paul lists it as sins among the brethren at Corinth. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, Backbitings. This it goes on. Don't think for a moment that Faith Bible Church is exempt. It goes on here. Stop it. Don't allow it. Slanders, backbiting. It's it's a compound word that means speak against to evil speaking. So he's confronting the sinner. Slander makes me a judge of others. Matthew chapter seven verses one to three: Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you not consider the plank in your own eye? Slander makes me a judge of others. There was a cartoon. you're Familiar? Some of you are familiar with Charlie Brown's cartoon. It depicted a little lioness, he's the one who always carried it around his blanket, had his thumb in his mouth, he's sucking his thumb. He's sitting down beside Lucy, and he looked troubled. So he turns to Lucy and says to her, "Why are you always so anxious to criticize me?" Her response was typical. "I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults." I've heard that, by the way. "I just have a knack for seeing other people's faults." Exasperated, Linus threw his hands up and asked, what about, my, what about your own faults? Without hesitation, Lucy explained, I have a knack for overlooking them. <laughs> now, this has not been said to me, but it, it was almost said, and then the, the person cut off, I have the gift of criticism. Use it or lose it. There are actually some people who believe they have that gift. Slander makes me a judge of others. Backbiting makes me a judge of others. The second thing you notice is slander puts me above the law. Now, notice in the text, it's not capital L-A-W. This is not the law, this is not the Ten Commandments. I believe this law is referenced back to chapter 2, verse 8, where he talks about the royal law of love. This puts me above the royal law of love. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. When's the last time you took a bite out of somebody's back? When's the last time you took a bite out of your own back? Thou shall love thy neighbor as thyself. See, slander puts me above the law. The third thing you notice is that slander puts me above the lawgiver. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, and it's not you. It's not me. There's only one lawgiver who can save and destroy, and it's not you. John MacArthur summarizes this, I think probably the best and maybe the easiest. He says Jesus is condemning careless, derogatory, critical, slanderous accusations against other believers. Get out of the rut. Stop this. The second thing I want to look at in verse 13 and 14. Self-sufficient attitude examined. Verse 13 and 14. Man proposes. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit. The language is, as such, reflects confidence. The statement assumes control. Let us do this. We're, you know, we made our plans. Now let me say this, and I may mention it later in case I forget. It's not wrong to plan. We know that the Scripture tells, he that goes to build a house needs to count the cost. So you remain a good testimony to the community. So yes, we need to plan ahead. There's, not a, there's nothing wrong with planning ahead. But this Language used here reflects confidence and assumes control. We'll do such and such. Also, it ignores the uncertainty of the future and ignores the brevity of life. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit. You didn't, but friend, he says, or brethren, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring forth, for what is your life? It's even a vapor. It's a mist. You don't know about the uncertainty of the future. You don't know about tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. I always think when I think of the, the, the vapor, uh, the, the breath, I always think of being up north in the middle of the winter and you walk outside and you just breathe out. And there's this breath, that this cloud that forms because your breath is warmer than the air and then it's gone. We, we measure our lifetime in years. But it's brief. Don't be so arrogant that you can assume that you have control. Let your confidence be rather, as we'll see here, God disposes, if the Lord wills. Nine distinguished gentlemen. A legend has it that in 1923, a meeting of America's most powerful men took place at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending the meeting were the following nine financiers and power brokers. The president of America's largest steel company, the president of America's largest utility company, the president of America's largest gas company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, the president of the Bank of International State Settlements, the nation's greatest wheat speculator, the nation's greatest bear and speculator on Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and a member of President Harding's cabinet. It was said to have been both a celebration of their success as well as an opportunity to plan their future exploits and dominance. These were captains of their respective industries and some of the most successful businesses of the era. But how did things turn out for these distinguished gentlemen? Within 25 years, all these great men had met a horrific end to their careers or of their lives. The president of the largest steel company, Charles Schwab, died a bankrupt man. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died penniless. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, suffered a mental breakdown. He ended up in an insane asylum. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, had just been released from prison. The bank president, Leon Fraser, had taken his own life. The wheat speculator, Arthur Kooten, died penniless. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivor Kruger, the match king, also had taken his life. And the member of President Hardy's cabinet, Albert Fall, had just been given a pardon from prison so that he could die at home. As for the Wall Street bear, Jesse Livermore, famous speculator in the stock market and commodities, his end is perhaps the most tragic of all. A week after Thanksgiving in 1940, Jesse walked into the Sherry Netherland Hotel in New York. He had two drinks at the bar while scribbling a note on a piece of uh, paper. Then proceeded to to the cloakroom, where he sat on a stool and killed himself. He was 62. He left behind five million dollars, down from the hundred million fortune that he had amassed ten years ago. What did the note say? My dear Nina, can't help it. Things have been bad with me. I'm tired of fighting. Can't carry on any longer. This is the only way out. I'm unworthy of your love. I am a failure. I am truly sorry, but this is the only way out for me. Love, Jesse. Don't ignore the uncertainty of the future. Don't ignore the brevity of life. If God wills, I came across this statement. Write your plans in pencil. And then give God the eraser. I mean, just think about it. Not wrong to plan. But if God wills, if God wills, he's still in charge. He's still in control. Job said in verse chapter 7, verse 6, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Chapter 8, verse 9, For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Chapter 9, verse 25, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. Psalm chapter 31, verse 14 to 15. I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hands. Chapter 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days. Self-sufficient attitude is examined. The third one I want you to see there in verse 16 and 18. The self-absorbed attitude is exposed. Verse 16. It's... It is defiant. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. But now you boast in your arrogance. To boast is to be loudmouthed, is what it means. You're a loudmouth. You're bragging. You're proclaiming one's own accomplishments. It's arrogance. You boast in your arrogance. The word means to wander about. It actually was used of a traveling quack who would promise you great things from the medicine that he had conjured up that provided nothing. It's one who lives to hear himself talk, especially about himself. You boast in your arrogance. I was at an evangelistic meeting. It was a long time ago. I can't remember if it was in college or shortly after college. But the evangelist was, was preaching long, and I mean, it was a great message, really heartfelt. And there was an individual that was near the, near the front, who would loudly proclaim amen when the evangelist would make a, a point. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. You can say an amen once in a while, that's okay. It was to the point where you were sitting there listening to the evangelist preach, and you were waiting for the Amen. And it got to the point where I think the person, the amener, realized that people were waiting, so he would wait. And just as the evangelist would get ready to speak again, he'd, he'd throw out that loud amen that would ring through the auditorium. To the point where it's distracting, not only to the listener, but also to the evangelist. And I remember thinking in my mind, I wonder what he's going to do. How's he going to stop this? So he paused, he waited. And acted like he was gonna start saying something. The guy said amen, and he stopped, he looked right at him. He said, Friend, an empty barrel makes the most noise. An empty barrel makes the most noise. But now you boast in your arrogance. You boast to be a loudmouth. Your arrogance is to hear myself talk, especially about myself. This poem, called Invictus, some of you are familiar with it, it was written by William Ernest Henley, expresses this defiant attitude of men or of man to God. Listen to it as we follow through with it. You'll see his attitude of defiance. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid." It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's defiance. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Not only defiant, but it's sinful. He says in verse verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The word knows is to possess an understanding of what is good. Not just to know, but to know what it means and also what it doesn't mean. It's the parent who takes the child, and and you've seen this happen too, where they take the child and take their face and hold it and look them right in the eyes and tell them what they cannot do. Do you understand what I just said? And the child will usually shake their head, and you say, no. Tell me what I just said. Explain it to me. You want to know that they know, and know what it means as well as what it doesn't mean. That's what the the point that James is saying here. Therefore, to him who knows to do good. Good is what is morally excellent, what is right, which is honorable, which is valuable, what is praiseworthy. You know what is good. It's written on your conscience what is good. If you spend any time in the Word of God, you know what is good. You know what is right. And you know what is wrong. You know what the rut is you need to stay out of. Because once you get in that rut, you'll be there for 25 miles. It's sinful. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, it, to him it is sin. They did exactly opposite what was good. Knowing, knowingly, they did what is not good. Knowingly, they did what was not right. Knowingly, they did what was not honorable. knowing they did what was not valuable. Knowingly, they did what was not praiseworthy. They knowingly did this. To them, it is sin. This is the most common word used for sin in the Scripture and has to do with miss the mark. It's the same in Romans 5 eight. but God commended His love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The word sinners there, even there. Even though you and I continually miss the mark, God in His love sent Jesus Christ on the cross to help us hit the mark. He died on the cross for our sins that so we could have eternal life. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. He, on purpose, misses the mark. He doesn't aim at the target. He aims away from the target. He knows what he's doing, and he knows why he's doing it. He likes the rut he's in. To him, it is sin. There is no neutral ground. There is no halfway house. I'm kind of in... Are kind of out. You're all in for him that knows to do good, to him it is sin. I know that was a short message, but I hope you got the point. Are you a practical atheist? You believe in God. But you live as if he doesn't exist. Or do you believe in God and live as if knowingly he does exist? We started the year talking about gospel and life. Living your life in submission to the will of God and obedience to the word of God 24-7. We live because he does exist. And we're seeking to implant that and live that consistently. Get out of the rut. Stop doing this. Stop practicing practical atheism. Stop backbiting. Start planning with God. Give him the eraser. Let him determine the day and the days that he be glorified and honored. Understanding this, the same God that sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins, is the same God that desires to us to live godly lives, valuable lives, praiseworthy lives on a consistent basis. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your, your power of your word, your might, your strength. We thank you for James, who so concisely says these things and brings these up to challenge us as believers in our lives and our words and our actions. Oh God, I pray that we allow the Spirit of God to work in us, that we be more and more conformed to the image of your Son. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here by any chance this morning, through the singing, through the preaching, realizing that you're not saved, that you have missed the mark, that you need a Savior and you'd like someone to show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. If, you're, if you'd like someone to speak to you after the service, just quickly raise your hand, put it back down. I'll talk to you privately, not embarrass you. If you're here and say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. I'm in a rut. I'm in a habit. I'm in a bad habit. Is there anyone like that? Others? Father, we pray, we thank you for your love, we thank you for your patience, we thank you for the practicality of the word. Indeed, Father, I pray as we go forth, realizing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are absolutely in control of eternity, as well as in control of today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.